0: brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
2: Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks to the future and says, all right, this one goes out to our producer, Noel. I woke up, saw a Texas dawn light shining in your eyes. I'm Jonathan Strickland.
1: I'm Lauren Vogelbaum.
4: And I'm Joe McCormick. So you guys went on a trip, didn't you?
1: We sure did. did.
2: Boy, howdy, did
1: we go on a trip. <laughs> Where uh, did you go? We went to South by Southwest Interactive in beautiful Austin, Texas.
2: Yes, I shared a uh, Airbnb house with several other of the guys here at How Stuff Works. So uh, Noel and I both know the joys of sleeping in a large living room together.
1: Aww. It was. It was. we being a little bit sarcastic here at the top, but uh, but but no. But it was. I mean, it was an amazing, wonderful trip. Yes. It was overwhelming most of the time.
4: Yeah. Now, a lot of our listeners may already understand, but just brief rundown: What is South by Southwest so Interactive?
2: South by Southwest. First of all, you have to know that South by Southwest itself is an enormous festival that takes over downtown Austin, Texas, for a little bit more than a week, and it has three. It's not just music. No, it's not just music. It has three primary elements. It's got music. That's that's a big one. It's got film. That's a big one. And it has interactive, which is the youngest of the three elements to join this conference. Uh, And interactive is really, when you get down to it, anything vaguely techie. Lots of Internet-based companies. But over the years, we've seen more and more companies that are tangential to Internet startups join in the fun and create amazing experiences. There are uh, tracks of panels that you can go to to learn more about certain subjects, but there's oh, yeah. also just a ton of other stuff going on. So, for example, you could walk around downtown Austin and never go to a panel ever, but hit all the installations, exhibits, and parties that are uh, they are kind of supplemental to the official. Uh, track programming.
1: Uh, yeah, a lot of the the really big tech companies have a presence there. A, a lot of them are kind of kind of wooing everyone involved. You know, put, putting their very best marketing face forward. Mm-hmm. And and there are so many people who who are in the industry who are either on panels or just hanging out, having amazing conversations about about digital culture and and just what it's like 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 what this new world that's internet-based is like around us.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of networking going on at South by Southwest. And I mean that literally people are, are networking together and cre- sometimes creating brand new projects just through their conversations they're having there. So it's, uh, it's, it's a party atmosphere, but there's also a lot of talk, real serious talk around innovation and being more effective. And uh, I got to go to three panels while I was there So I wanted to kind of talk about those panels because they tie in directly to themes we've discussed here on Forward Thinking quite a few times. Now, please keep in mind... The three panels I saw, they were all part of the same track of programming, which was the Intelligent Future track. Kind of, kind of our sweet spot.
1: Uh, yeah, which is just one of what maybe like a dozen, yeah. uh, tracks that just were going an on. Just in Interactive. Just in Interactive. And, uh, there were hundreds of panels yes. available. Yeah. Just in Intelligent. Maybe, maybe another dozen. We'll, we'll, we'll say dozens of panels available Intelligent Futures yep. over the course of the five days of Interactive. And that's in addition to uh, hundreds and hundreds of more panels going on throughout that week and throughout the film segment and throughout the music segment. And so.
2: also there are unofficial events as well. Like there are discussions that didn't require a badge yeah. for you to go and check out. So in other words, what, what I'm doing is I'm giving you all the caveats to suggest this is not the only thing that was talked about in South by Southwest. This was the stuff I was personally able to go see. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, the stuff I saw was pretty amazing. So I wanted to start with the first panel I saw. This was... Saturday morning, 9.30 in the morning, as I recall. Uh, Looking forward to rush hour.
4: No, I don't think they have a 9.30 on Saturdays.
2: They do. (laughs) I've I've witnessed it personally. I
1: think downtown Austin was as surprised as you are by this information.
2: Yeah. Uh, It actually was a pretty full panel, too. That was the other thing that surprised me because I had always heard that uh, because of the party atmosphere of South by Southwest, the morning panels were not very well attended. But that was not the case in this one. Uh, It was called looking forward to rush hour, uh, not the movie. Future of transit. (laughs) So, uh, the panel I saw featured, uh, Dan Dorley and Chip Walters, both of whom work for Altuit design, which is a, a company that does, uh, uh, industrial and product design. And they are both designers. And so they kind of split the panel into two major, uh, uh, subjects. Um, Dan Dorley took the, the microphone first and talked about the future of cars. And, uh, One of the things they really focused on, no big surprise, happened to be autonomous cars. This is something we've obviously talked about several times here uh, at Forward Thinking. But uh, at South by Southwest, autonomous cars are pretty much – were pretty much talked about as an inevitable future. Not will autonomous cars become a thing, but it was more like when are they going to be the thing, I think that's
4: been our uh, consensus as well, hasn't it?
2: I agree. Yeah, it's just one of those where you go there and and everyone's talking about like it's already here almost. Like we're – to be fair, it looks like we're right on the cusp, right? It's just going to take a little bit more work for us to see the first really uh, truly autonomous vehicles uh, available for some form of commercial uh, purpose. It may not be for a personal vehicle, but we'll get more into that a little bit. So he also talked about how autonomous cars have the potential to drastically change car design and more in the future. For one, uh, obviously, there's not necessarily a need for human controls. Uh, so this hasn't completely shaken out yet, right? There are some designs for autonomous vehicles that include things like your traditional steering wheel and other controls, some of which might fold away when you go into autonomous mode. Uh, but there are other companies like Google that advocate for a complete lack of human controls uh, basically because it improves safety. The idea being that if you're driving down the street and you've got a friend sitting in the passenger seat, you don't want your friend reaching over, suddenly grabbing the steering wheel and giving it a, a strong jerk to the right, right? Well, you same thing. You don't want to have an autonomous system in control of a car, and then have a human try and wrest control from that.
1: Especially uh, if, if, brain power-wise, your friend is, for example, a small child or extremely inebriated. Like, that's right. probably how the technology in Google's cars would see us right. humans. As if Extremely they... inebriated children.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly how how they would see us. And, and for good reason. I mean, you're talking about a system that has planned out what it's going to do. And if you introduce what appears to be random noise into that, you have just put a, a what was, at least in theory, a safe system uh, into an, and turned it into one that's not safe. So uh, that was one of the points he made. Also said that if you don't have human controls, it means you can completely redesign the interior of cars. And we haven't really talked about this on Forward Thinking, but when you think about it, that's true. You could have an interior of a car not look anything like cars do right now. We've seen some artists... Depictions of this, where all the seats are facing inward, where it's more like almost like a conference room, mm-hmm. like there's a table in the center, and your 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 back is to the windshield.
1: Oh, well, there's there's still some practical considerations to think of around like like motion sickness. I would not personally be excited about riding backwards in a car. Well,
2: I, you can you can always sit in the the, the back of the sure. car, and then you don't even have to. You know, you're still facing forward. Or there, I've seen some. Uh, designs where it's a swivel version, where the front front seats can, yeah, no, I totally get it because I I also, if I'm sitting backward for too long in any kind of moving vehicle, I feel a little little, uh, green around the gills. But you could also create more um, displays for things like entertainment. You could have a lot of other options. Uh, You could have workstations if you wanted to do work while you're in the car. Also could make you really motion sick if you're not used to that sort of thing. But Interesting alternatives to what we have often thought of as the traditional uh, interior of a, of a car. Also pointed out, uh, Dorley pointed out that autonomous cars are safer than human drivers. And once there are enough autonomous cars on the road, you can really change what is standard car design. Uh, for example, you don't need to build in huge crumple zones if all the cars on the road or the vast majority of them are autonomous because the likelihood of any kind of crash on that level is so low, which means you're using less material to make your cars. That's less wasteful. Uh, You can be more efficient with the material you're creating. It also means that the cars themselves weigh less. And presuming that these cars are also electric, which I think most people just assume that's the future, that's going to be it, Uh, electric in one way or another, it means that you can preserve battery life. You know, their battery doesn't have to put out as much uh, electricity to move a lighter car as it would a heavier car. You know, pr- pretty simple stuff, but his point was that the implications of autonomous cars go well beyond you don't have to drive anymore. Um, he also brought up the idea of, uh, of a universal chassis. So in other words, you create a base for your vehicles that is common across all the lines of vehicles you make. You might have to extend it a bit for certain vehicles like uh, the chassis that you might use for a compact car, obviously, you would have to alter a little bit for it to be like a pickup truck. But you can start with the same basic uh, foundation, and this allows you to, uh, to rapidly build various different vehicle types. On demand poss- possibly, because he also brought up the potential for 3D printed cars. Yeah.
1: And and yeah, right. Any anytime that you can streamline the manufacturing process, you're you're saving time and energy.
2: Yes. And that's both of those are, are non trivial, right? We've talked about well, you and know, money, but yeah. 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 Time, <laughs> energy, and money. It's a it's the it's the trio that's everyone's wanting to uh to really crack. Uh, we actually saw this concept. Championed in person, or at least when I say we, I mean a crew from How Stuff Works did. I went to CES, and you might remember I talked about Faraday Future's FF01 race car concept. It was a super crazy looking race car, but it was really just an eye catcher for Faraday Future to talk about their approach, which takes this idea of let's start with a basic foundation that is very easily modifiable, and then we can create all sorts of different vehicles using this same uh, chassis, and that reduces production costs dramatically. And ultimately, it means that these types of vehicles will be less expensive to make, and therefore, at least in theory, less expensive to purchase, uh, as well as other implications. So uh, he also talked about you could get to a point where you could design your own vehicle.
1: Yeah. Like, like on the flip side uh, you know, instead of being less customized, you could, you could get something very customized.
2: Right. So you, you got like your basic chassis where essentially that, that is unchangeable to some degree, but then you can sit there and decide how your car should look. You can become a car designer using some form of uh, 3D manipulation software. Like should it have,
4: uh, should it have that gremlin on the front, like the truck in maximum overdrive?
2: Uh, you, I mean, I guess you could do that. I was thinking that you could go crazy, like Homer Simpson, when he had the chance to design his own car. Like, you need a horn everywhere. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, but you could actually design your own unique vehicle that nobody else in the world will have. Uh, and there are even some companies right now that are experimenting with this. Now, granted, this is, Super high end, so you've got to have a lot of money to be able to do this sort of thing. Also, you obviously need to have some some skill in design to make this uh, something that's both going to be a practical and attractive, or if not practical, at least safe, right? <laughs> so, uh, but but it's an interesting notion that we could get to a level of customization where, at least for some businesses, you don't you know people will ask, well, what kind of car is that? Oh, it's my car. I made mm-hmm. it. There is no other like it. That's pretty amazing.
1: Um, uh, and then the second half of the talk uh, discussed the Hyperloop, right?
2: Yeah. This was Chip Walters who took this uh, concept and ran with it. So he was talking about how when uh, Elon Musk or Elon Musk, I usually say Elon, but I've heard both, uh, was talking about Hyperloop. His idea was that he wanted to make the, the designs that he and his engineers had come up with. Uh, available for other companies to play with, to turn this idea into a potential reality. And Altuit Design was one of the companies that actually took on that challenge. So first, Walters explained the differences between their approach to creating a capsule for the Hyperloop and the one that was outlined in the initial documents that Musk released. And so uh, in Musk's version, the idea is that a capsule would travel at a top speed of more than 700 miles per hour or 1,127 kilometers per hour. But Walter said that when their engineers started working on this and started crunching the numbers, they decided that it was probably better to design a top speed of between 300 to 400 miles per hour or 483 to 644 kilometers per hour as the top speed. Not that the 700 would have been impossible, but this would be more achievable from an engineering standpoint. It's more practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a couple of different reasons. One about you know, the amount of energy you would need to uh, push something up to that, that top speed. Another would be uh, how long you would want the acceleration to last. Because obviously if you have a short period of acceleration, you create a huge amount of force that the the people riding the capsule will feel. So you want to decrease that amount. You want the acceleration to be nice and gentle so that it's not something that everyone's concentrating on, like they're suddenly pressed back in their seat and can't move forward at all. Um, And he also pointed out that this caused some other issues, because if you're moving at a quote-unquote slower speed, then your trip is going to take longer, right? Like a trip from San Francisco to L.A. will take longer. The original Hyperloop design has that trip lasting about half an hour, well, if you're going half that speed, you're talking about at least an hour to get from point A to point B.
1: Which is still incredible, yeah. but it, you know. You might need to go to the bathroom in an hour. Oh, right. You
2: might be all right for half an hour. You might even be all right for an hour. But for longer travel times, you have to start thinking, all right, well, now we've got to build in something that wasn't in the initial approach, which is lavatories. And that's just one of those practical considerations you have to make. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that he talked about that. Uh, he also mentioned that the uh, the design they created had retractable wheels. So in normal operation, you actually have air bearings. It's a, a, like an air sled almost inside. You know, you've, the Hyperloop, in case you've forgotten, it's an enclosed uh, like tunnel-like track that's elevated above the ground, uh, but it's it's a vacuum tube or near vacuum. It's actually very low air pressure, so not a true vacuum, that a capsule or several capsules actually can move through. And each capsule uses compressed air to rise up above the surface of the, uh, the, the enclosed track and fly on down at, t- at high speeds. And you're able to go at those high speeds because you have very low friction, very low air resistance, and that helps. Uh, but you, not, you might need wheels if the air system breaks down.
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's the most practical. If, you know, so- something happens, you don't want to have to wait for, like, helicopters to come get everybody off the train or something like yeah, that.
2: Yeah, you're inside a solid capsule inside a tunnel that is elevated above the ground. You might start feeling a wee bit anxious if it stops moving and you have no idea when it will start again. So they have these retractable wheels in their design that would deploy if the uh, if the air sled was to stop working, and then they could just wheel to the next exit point. And I I think he said, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure he said that in their design they made it uh, a requirement that there should be an exit point every 10 miles along the track. So it would drive using its wheels to the next uh, extraction point, essentially, and you would exit the chamber or the, you would exit the capsule into the, the track uh, and then climb out from there. Uh, so uh, it, that was also interesting. He also talked about the fact that there, there would be multiple classes of capsule layouts. So sort of like how you have different classes of seats in an airplane. You would have different classes of seats in a Hyperloop. Hmm. Um, he first explained that Musk's design allowed for two different sizes of capsules, one that would be smaller and one that would be Larger, And they chose to go with the larger one for two reasons. One, the smaller one created a real feeling of claustrophobia when you think about how small it was. Um, and two, the larger one would allow for uh, you to have a car stored in one of the the, um, the capsules. So the idea being that if you were trying to go from San Francisco to L.A., but you needed to have your car once you got to L.A., <laughs> it could transport the car as well. Um and so uh they they showed off some of the or he showed off some of the artist renderings of what these different capsule interiors would look like. So the the top of the line had the fewest number of seats, so each person was given the most space possible. And this is one where you might uh Lauren, you might have to have uh, uh claim a specific chair because <laughs> Because the the four seats, they would all the two two pairs of seats would face in toward each other, and you could have like a fold away tray or table that you could lay out to act as a workstation. But again, it's almost like a um, conference table. Now, the difference here, of course, is that you can't you can't see the outside. There's no window for you to look at. Oh, right, right, and which see is which is a
1: huge part of of motion sickness. Right. Absolutely,
2: right. So uh, it's also something that some people might find creates some anxiety, but I'll talk more about their solution to that in just a second. So uh, that was the most roomy it, of the three is, layouts. Is it puppies? It could be, but I'll get to it. Uh, so next was a business class style capsule, which had sort of roomy-ish seats. What You could think of it like kind of the, uh, the comfort economy seats in some airlines. And then you had your economy class or standard class, which, you know, you pack them in like sardines. And uh, uh, it looked like the you know, again, in the renderings, it looked like the width of the capsule was about the same as a small commercial jet. So maybe one that has like two seats on one side and one seat on the other, something along those lines. Or maybe two and two. But that's about as many as you could pack just because the the limitations on the uh, size, the interior size of the capsule. Um, and here's how they tried to combat the feeling that you're just in a you know, like, a, like essentially an elevator that you can't get out of for half an hour or an hour, they, in their design, they expect that the walls would be uh, very high quality displays and you could display something on the walls that could be, uh, it could even be uh, in motion, like it could be a video, not just a static picture, so that you have something to look at besides just, you know, the people sitting around you. And in the examples they had, they had one that looked like you were flying over clouds, like you were in a jet, uh, with with no obstruction. Like it, like the whole thing is just open because uh, you know there, there are no windows. The whole side of the wall is a screen. Uh, there was another one where it made it look like it was a giant aquarium, so it was really <laughs> cool. But uh, you know, again, it was just sort of conceptual. There's they don't have one built, um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And they also said. That uh, because of their design, because they're not a jet, you don't have to have the capsule accelerate to top speed right away. You can take a lot of time and have it continuously accelerate at a lower rate, thus creating less of a, of a force upon the people inside the capsule. Right. Now, that's obviously important. if you're If you're one of those people who's sitting with your back facing the front of the capsule, and if it were to accelerate quickly, you would be bent forward right? You wouldn't be pressed back in your seat. You would be folded up. So uh, you'd want to make sure that that accelerative force is not so strong as to create discomfort in the passengers.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. No, nobody wants to unintentionally head desk. That's yeah. not That's not fun.
2: No. Uh, intentional head desks are, are comedic. Uh, unintentional ones are tragic. So um, he also mentioned a neat thing that I never thought about before. So Clearly, these these tracks are not going to be a straight line. You're not going to have a straight line from San Francisco to L.A. There's going to be some curves. But then you think, well, curves, when you change direction, that's an acceleration, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's a velocity thing. It's got a vector. Uh, So how do you change the direction without having that Star Trek effect of everyone being jostled around inside the capsule whenever it's because you can't even see when a turn's coming up, right? Because you're inside a solid capsule. And they said, well, the way it works is it banks. Uh, the actual capsule will roll up the side of the wall, the, the curved uh, wall of the tunnel. And uh, because of that, the G-force will continuously be pulling you downward, not pulling you left or right, because it has this banking ability. Same sort of thing that if you had a racetrack with banked turns, those G-forces are pulling you down more than they're they're pulling you off to the side. Uh, so if you've ever been on a road that has like a banked turn, you know it feels a lot different than if you're just going around a flat curve to the left or right where you're being pulled to one side or the other. And I thought, well that's really interesting. I never thought of that, that the, these, these capsules are essentially kind of, uh, uh, they're not, they're not always perpendicular to the ground. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, they're never going to be parallel to the ground. You're never going to have a turn that's going to be that <laughs> that intense. But they're going to, you know, they allow some sway. And I thought that was a really clever idea. Uh, one other thing that they brought up that I thought was interesting, I didn't put it in my notes here, is that uh, as they were talking about this future of autonomous cars and um, uh, uh, and the Hyperloop, is that with the autonomous cars, you suddenly have the capability of allowing more people access to mobility, which is great, but that also means it potentially could mean more miles driven by vehicles. So we might actually see a net increase in the number of miles driven by vehicles on the roads. So we might see more cars on the road in the future because – Autonomous cars will give more mobility and independence to people who previously had no access to that, like the elderly, children, people who have uh, visual impairments. And or something sort of like
1: epilepsy. Yeah,
2: right. Exactly. I have a friend who, when she has to take her medication, she cannot drive because she is prone to epilepsy. Mm-hmm. So but she might be able to do that in an autonomous vehicle. So that raises more questions about what will traffic be like in the future? Now, if autonomous cars are super smart, it might be end up being all right because they'll make more efficient use of the infrastructure than human drivers would. But we don't know that for sure, right? That's something that we can't say for sure right now.
1: Uh, yeah, and this, this conversation actually leads us into these – well, it was technically the third panel that you went to. right? But it's a but it's a tied-in concept, the yeah. second panel that we're going to discuss today.
2: Robot cars and sharing road rage or smooth sailing. Yeah, so because – What about
4: smooth rage?
1: Ooh.
2: It sounds like it's a –
1: type of music. I love smooth rage.
2: Uh, at any rate, uh, this would be, as Lauren was saying, this was the third panel I saw that day, but because it ties directly into the, what I just talked about, we decided to tackle it next. Uh, this panel focused on the future of autonomous cars and the concept of the shared car. Uh, and the panelists included Frederick Sue of NATO, uh, Shad Laws from Renault, and, and Nissan. He specifically works for Renault, but he says that in the United States, like that's one of the places where re- the brand Renault is not known. But their partner brand, Nissan, everyone knows. And then Mark Platchen from BMW. Uh, and Mark Platchen was actually a substitute. Uh, Marion Wu of GE Ventures was supposed to be on the panel, but she got sick, unfortunately, just before uh, South by Southwest. So uh, Nato, I mentioned with Frederick Sue, you might wonder what that company is. It's a company that makes an app that coordinates a mobile device, uh, several cameras, and a data infrastructure of driving information to improve fleet management. Uh, it measures driving skill. So if you have like a, uh, a company like Uber and you want to uh, find out if a driver is actually appropriate for your business, you could install this system and, and see how well they drive um, as well as uh, it could turn a regular car into a smart car. So you can think of it as, as sort of an aftermarket smart car upgrade. And it, you would mount a camera. Essentially, it goes right over where you're um, right behind where your rear view mirror is. So it doesn't block your view. Uh, and that coordinates with uh, an app running on a mobile device and also the obviously the infrastructure of the app. So he was sort of the moderator, Sue was. And according to Sue... The typical American car spends 96% of its life parked. <laughs> We're only driving our cars 4% of the entire time that they are active. And that uh, I, I, I think it's pretty easy to say that's inefficient. That's not an efficient use of the technology. It
4: matters, especially in cities where you got to find a place to keep the cars. Right,
2: yeah, especially cities where parking is a premium. Things like New York City, that would be a big one, right? So, uh, they also only use about 2% of all the energy they expend to move a person from point A to point B. The other 98% are, uh, that's used for other stuff, either, uh, overcoming inefficiencies or moving the vehicle itself, but not, you know, you, you, it's when you take the factor of the person out of it. So only 2% of the energy that the vehicle is using is actually doing what you need it to do, which is get a person from one point to another. And that's, you know, that's also inefficient. So he was talking also about how electric cars could be a, uh, uh, an advantage to this. You could, uh, with, with the improvement of things like uh, battery technology and the simplified drivetrain of electric cars, you improve the efficiency of the overall system. Uh, there's still arguments to be made about how the electricity is produced and all of that, but that, that was not what he was focusing on. Uh, he introduced the concept of ACEs which uh, stands for Autonomous, Connected, Electric, and Sharing. And he had these set up in in a slide in four corners. And then he showed related concepts between each of the elements to explain how these all fit together in the car of the future. So all of those elements are important for cars of the future, but a lot of the projected models incorporate all four into one approach. So in other words, you don't necessarily have to have a future with autonomous cars or electric cars or shared cars or connected cars. But most of the projected models have all four of those playing at least some role. Uh, And he said that the autonomous car era will be akin to another industrial revolution with massive disruption across multiple industries beyond personal transportation, including shipping, so like the trucking industry, uh, and the airline industry. Because if you're able to get a, uh, uh, a cheap ride in an autonomous car to take you to your destination, and it's less expensive than an airplane ticket, and you're not as concerned about getting there in the least amount of time, that could be incredibly disruptive, incredibly um, uh, hard for the airline industry to handle. It may become a very different business uh, in 5 to 10 years, or 20 to 40 if we want to go with our usual number. Hmm. So according to laws, the safety benchmark for manually driven cars is Less than one fatality for every 100 million kilometers traveled. And he says most nations meet this or exceed this already today. And he was making this point to say, uh, you know, talking about making the argument that autonomous cars need are, are safer than uh, manually driven cars. His point was manually, manually driven cars are already really safe because when you take this benchmark and you look at the world, almost all the nations already meet it. Uh, so in the U.S., it's uh, 1.08. 8 fatalities per 100 million vehicle miles traveled because it's the United States. And we use miles, not kilometers. So remember that a mile is 1.6 kilometers. So actually, even though it's 1.08 fatalities, it's actually less than one fatality per 100 million kilometers driven. Uh, but not all states are equal. According to the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, Wyoming leads the state uh, states in fatalities per 100 million miles driven at 1.59 And Massachusetts is on the low end at 0.57 for 100 million miles traveled. So I appreciate Laws' point that manually driven cars are already remarkably safe. However, that being said, it's very easy to kind of think of that in a statistics point of view. But when you start looking at hard numbers and you realize that in 2014, 32,675 people died in the United States due to car accidents, That, to me, is more powerful than less than one per 100 million kilometers travel.
4: Well, it means we do a lot of car driving.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot of cars on the road, and we're driving a lot. So in my mind, the safety argument is still a very relevant one. Laws was kind of saying, well, until autonomous cars prove that they are safer than uh, manually driven cars, which are already really safe, it's a non-issue. I think that based upon early results it's hard to argue autonomous cars are less safe they're at least as safe from what we've seen so far keeping in mind it's still very early days and maybe there'll be a case i hope there's not but maybe there'll be a case that shows that they are not as safe and we still have a ways to go uh pletchen actually introduced what he called the 3p's that are necessary for a fleet based system to work uh, which are proximity prevalence and price so you want proximity in the sense that you want you want cars on demand to be close to you right you don't want to have to wait 25 minutes for the car to get to you to pick you up unless you've scheduled it for that amount of time uh, if you call a car you want it to be there pretty quickly uh, the prevalence uh, is that you need to have enough cars in the area to meet demand so if if there's a car that's two minutes away that's awesome But if it just so happens that's one of three cars in the city and you just lucked out, that's not going to do you good in in the long run, right? And then price. Obviously, you need it to be uh, competitive and affordable. Right now, according to Platschin, the average price per mile for services like Uber and Lyft is about, uh, you know, excusing surge pricing, is about a dollar a mile. Uh, But he thinks that using autonomous technology, you can start to, and, and with the economy of scale, you can get that down to maybe fifty cents per mile, or maybe even as le- as little as twenty five cents per mile, which suddenly makes it a much more accessible uh, means of transportation for a larger amount of the population. Uh, as for the shared nature of cars, uh, Law said there are a lot of different models out there, and not all of them follow that fleet of service cars that we've talked about, right? So we've talked about how autonomous cars might mean that we don't own one of these as a personal vehicle rather we all rely on shared services yeah uh so one alternative he mentioned and he said there were multiples but this was the only example he gave was imagine that you have sort of a communal car where you and other households have all joined up together and essentially invested in a single vehicle so you own like one sixth of a car oh
4: that sounds like a horrible idea
2: i also (laughs) think that because how can you ever guarantee that the car will be available when you need it yeah. Unless everyone's schedule is slightly offset with each other and
1: never changes, yeah,
2: I can't imagine yeah. that working. Yeah, that,
4: that just sounds awful. I mean, it's an, it makes a lot more sense to me to do the the widespread shared car network issue. Yeah, where you, I, I agree. You, know, you call a car.
2: Yeah. Now, Platt shouldn't mentioned there are some. This was actually in response to an audience question uh, about well. What about privacy? What about the fact that people use their cars like there's a lot of clutter in in a lot in some people's cars? Not everyone keeps their car pristine. A lot of people have stuff that they rely upon stored in their cars so that it's easy to access and they don't have to carry it everywhere. And he said, yeah, that's a problem because obviously in the shared economy approach, you can't do that. It's like going in a taxi cab. You don't want to leave anything behind because you'll never see it again. But that means you can't rely on having stuff close at hand, just stored away in your mobile storage unit, which is your car. So you could argue that even though your car is parked 96% of its time, if it's also acting as a storage unit, then it has a little more added utility, right? Mm -hmm. And you lose that in the shared version. He said there's not really a good solution for that. Although if you get the price down low enough, he says, you could have your stuff in another car and just call it on demand and it comes and brings it to you. And I thought, (laughs) so you want to... Double or triple the number <laughs> of cars out there? <laughs> that seems like that would be a lot of money and a lot of, uh, of expended energy for a, what I would argue, a trivial benefit. But it was an interesting thing to hear about. So in both of the, the uh, autonomous car panels I saw, uh, there were people who were saying, listen, I don't think that personal ownership is going to go away. I don't think that we're going to get to a point where the government will outlaw manually driven, personally owned vehicles. But one guy said it may turn into something like horse ownership, that few people actually own a car. There will be some where there will be use cases where a car is necessary. Like in, uh, I would argue, again, in rural areas, it makes more sense to have a manually driven, personally owned vehicle Mm -hmm. than a car sharing service. Um, And also if you want to do things like off-roading, if you want to do recreational driving, obviously you would need to have your own Manually driven car, or yeah. or own sev- own a fleet of them and allow people to rent them,
1: or just or just hobbyists, which I I suppose is a word that's more often applied to car enthusiasts than to horse enthusiasts. Right. But you know there there are plenty of people out there who just like horses a whole bunch and want to have one. And yeah. you know f- for like Scott Benjamin, not with the horses, with the car thing, like I'm I'm sure would you, you you would have to you would have to pry his car away from his cold dead hands. Yeah,
2: I think I'm going to talk to Scott uh, later this week, and I'm going to drop some bombs on him to. Fight Find out how he reacts. Well,
1: <laughs> oh, be nice to Scott. I am
4: nice to him. One thing that occurs to me is that there are some people for whom they really need the car to be a mobile storage unit. For example, for the work they do,
2: Absolutely. sure. Uh, like yeah. if
4: you are a plumber, or if you are, you know, anybody who has right. a set of tools or materials in your truck that you use at various places that you go, right? That seems like you pretty much need to have your own vehicle.
2: Yeah, unless and, you have, unless you have some sort of uh, of plumbing business that's large enough to have its own fleet of dedicated vehicles that are outfitted with the right tools. But that ends up meaning that you would you couldn't have independent contractors anymore. Right, right. And I can't imagine that that's going to be a case, at least not until we get the plumber robots, which they don't, you know, they'll have all the tools just stored away and then they just hover over to your place and, and they hoover out the pipes.
4: Or maybe in the future, instead of calling a plumber, people will just call a car and then use the bathroom in the car and send it away. <laughs> there
2: was also talk about the fact that there there would need to be systems to maintain the Hygiene. Quality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that mm-hmm. would just do a scan and anything that pops up on the scan would say, oh, time to go back to HQ. Huh. Uh, oh,
4: never mind. I didn't need to go anywhere I was trying
2: I was trying to trans transition, however, to by making the plumber robot thing to the
1: last panel I saw. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was not about transit. No, it was about robots. 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 No, wait.
4: It wasn't about plumbers?
2: It was not about plumbers. It was not about the future of plumbers. Uh, Tell was, me about robots. It was called The panel was called One Robot Doesn't Fit All. Uh, and this one featured uh, four people. Uh, product designer Nuri Kim, uh, the executive director of interaction design research at Stanford University, uh, Wendy Ju. And then former Google X user experience researcher, uh, Leila Takayama. And finally, the CIO of fellow robotics, Thavidu Ranatunga. And this was a fascinating uh, panel. I will, let me go ahead and say this right off the top. I couldn't hear Renatunga very well. He he was a, uh, he's a soft-spoken guy and uh, my hearing is bad, uh, but it was a great panel. All the women were phenomenal, enthusiastic, and incredibly knowledgeable. And every question that was asked was a good one. And every answer was really great. I wish I could have shot video of it, but you can't at South by Southwest. So this is as close as you're gonna get if you weren't actually there so the panel mostly focused on how big a challenge it is to design robots um, and Takiyama pointed out that it's much easier to design a single purpose robot something that is meant to do one thing and one thing only and you can you can design everything about that robot to dedicate it toward that task, that is much easier than building a general-purpose robot.
4: This is something we've talked about on the show before.
2: Yeah. And Takayama actually went ahead and said, like, the more stuff your your robot does, the crappier it performs. Yeah. That was essentially the way she said it, too, which was awesome. Hmm. Uh, and her, her example, because uh, each panelist was asked to name what their favorite robot was. And her favorite robot was Mo from WALL-E. And Mo was the little tiny oh. robot. Just as Mo, and it tries to scrub. It, it's a cleaner robot. It just scrubs dirt off of things. Uh-huh.
1: And, and there are times in the film when, when Mo is critical to the mission.
2: Yes, and she loves Mo. She says, Mo knows what its purpose is. And that is what Mo does. That is all Mo does. And Mo does it with efficiency. And that's why I love this character. So that was really uh, very endearing. They actually showed a clip from the film. Huh. But uh, Takeyama and Ju both talked about how a, uh, as a human, it can be really difficult to tell what a robot is doing, particularly if the robot is in a mapping mode where it's it's examining its environment, but it's not directly acting on anything at the moment. You might just think it's being idle. Right. There's no necessarily there's not necessarily an outward indication that anything is going on besides it's just sitting there.
1: Uh, right. Unlike a human person who, you know, if, if they're trying, if a human is trying to figure out where to go next, they might be looking around. They right. might be checking a map. They might mm-hmm. be just standing with their head tilted in a in a perpetually confused manner.
2: They may be looking around uh, in a little bit of a, you know, a panic, hoping that they can find help. There's mm-hmm. at least some sort of visual indication Absolutely. that something's going on. right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, Takayama actually told a really funny story about that. Well, first first I should mention that um, that Ju's point was that there's also an issue where there's a trust barrier. If you don't know what the robot is doing, it's hard for you to trust the robot, right? You you If you suspect the robot might be doing something uh, on the sly, then it's going to make you feel nervous. And she brought up the example of Amazon Echo. This actually ended up being an interesting discussion because uh, Thavadu didn't think of Echo as being a robot. But Ju said, no, it totally is a robot. It's doing work on behalf of humans. It's doing it in the background. Sure, there's not a physical body moving around, but it is an artificially intelligent construct that's doing work on behalf of humans. And uh it doesn't necessarily fit the traditional definition of robot, but it's still doing what a robot does.
1: Sure. It's still a, it's a robot. Yeah. It's at least – it's at least –
4: Lauren just did some air quotes.
2: Yes. It's at least <laughs> the back end of uh, of a robotic system. It just lacks the physical body to move around. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't need it for what it does.
4: They just need to give it a single wheel.
2: Yeah. It has a so little it column just kind of spin, spin, kind of spin around, around in a circle. Well, one of the things that she pointed out is that uh it's – Impossible to tell when an Amazon Echo is really listening in because because <laughs> you, can, you can use voice commands to activate it, right? Yeah. You say Alexa and it wakes up. And by the way, if you have an Amazon Echo and I just woke it up, I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, because it's listening, you don't know if it's spying, if it's recording, if it's transmitting. That makes people nervous. It creates a trust issue. She says there needs to be some sort of system built in. To uh, make people feel better, like they know what's happening.
4: Alexa, order 10,000 drinking straws.
2: Oh, man. Yes. Okay, so Takayama also demonstrated uh, how this barrier could, barrier could create real engineering issues. She used a concrete example from her own past and told a story about how she used to work in an office building where engineers were working on robots uh, and, and testing them out all the time, which meant there were robots just cluttering up the hallway and there was a particular hallway that her office was off of that often was used for robot testing. And she said, I, I, I got to the point where I hated the things because <laughs> oh. I had to try and find a way to get around them while uh-huh. doing my day-to-day stuff. And she talked about how uh, in some cases the robots might be standing in front of a door. And what the robots are actually doing is mapping out the door. They're looking at the door's dimensions. They're identifying what is the handle. What is the mechanism for the handle? How do you operate it? Does the door open inward or does it open outward? These are things that we humans can figure out very quickly by looking at a door, right? And if we, if we don't uh, figure it out properly, if we pull when it's a push door, we figure that out and then change our behavior and move on. Robots, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and it could take hours for a robot to do all the mapping before it's able to take an action. And she talked about a time where she passed between the robot and a door in order to get around it. And immediately, engineers were running around the corner screaming at her, like, what did you do? We, You just ruined two hours of work. She says, I don't know. The robot's just sitting there. It's not (laughs) doing anything. How am I supposed to know it's doing something when it's just sitting there? All For me, it's just an obstacle that's in my way. And so that's what kind of got her thinking about creating robots that have some form of expression. And the benefit is not to the robot necessarily, at least not directly but more to humans for human robot interactions.
4: Yeah, I've uh, read about these concepts before. One of them is, I is it the Baxter robot that does this where uh, it has eyes? Mm-hmm. And it's not so much, like you say, it's not for the robot because the robot can see anyway with its cameras. Right. But it has eyes that are displayed on a screen so that the person can tell what the robot is looking at.
2: Yes. And that's that's exactly what Takeyama and Ju were both arguing for. They were saying this is absolutely critical to build meaningful human-robot interactions that are effective and not distracting or destructive. And so she said, you know, she created a paper. She worked with a, a guy from Pixar to create a series of animations to kind of get people's reactions to various scenarios in which a robot might react or not react. And she said, what if you had a robot that's standing there looking at a door, it's mapping things out just as the situation was in her real past but it occasionally reaches up and sort of makes a scratching motion at its head, like it's thinking. She said, well, that's an indication that it's actually doing something. It's not just sitting idle. It's mm-hmm. not just trying to charge itself or something. And that that would give an indication to the human, oh, I should skirt around the other side because this robot's actually trying to do something. I don't know what it is, but it's clear it's it's occupied with something. Um, and she also talked about uh, creating a series of animations that indicate uh, – a robot's reaction to either succeeding at a task or failing at it. And again, it's not for the robot's benefit. It's for the people around the robot. And she gave a very simple example, again, of opening a door. So imagine that you have a robot and it, uh, it tries to open a door, but for some reason it is incapable of doing so. Maybe its grip is at the wrong point on the handle and it slips right off. Uh, she said, well, if you have a robot that does it but doesn't react to the failure then people just think of it as a dumb robot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You you don't know that the robot knows that it failed. Exactly.
2: Yeah, you just think that the robot just went through. It's almost like if someone were remote controlling it and they just missed a little bit. And They're like, oh, well, all right. It's just a dumb thing. It doesn't have any intelligence of its own. So you you need
4: to give it sadness.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so the Pixar animator did this thing. And it kind of looked a little, not exactly like WALL-E, but kind of similar in that it had an articulated head and had arms and... Uh, A a kind of a blocky body in the animation. It's a very simple animation where the robot reaches forward, the the hand slips off the handle, and then the robot sags a little bit, like its shoulder, like what, well, the block essentially sags down a bit as if it's disappointed in itself.
1: Slightly deflates.
2: Yeah, and the people that she talked to after they viewed the various animations, they were supposed to rank how intelligent they thought each robot was. The interesting thing was they thought the robots that failed but indicated they understood that they failed, in other words, they made this expression, were more intelligent than robots that succeeded but showed no in, no response at all. Huh? So they, there oh, also were great. success ones. Yeah. And yeah, my favorite was a success one where the robot <laughs> opens up a door and then immediately like, – like they had a little column that represented a person. Uh-huh. So the robot opens up a door and immediately turns its head to the person and looks down, looks up and – And and perks up as if to say, look what I did. And everyone in the audience went, oh, (laughs) these were very simplistic um, representations, too. They weren't like like realistic or true to life or anything. So I thought this was fascinating. This idea of designing robots for human robot interaction, Uh, again, taking human psychology into account, because often from the roboticist side, they're looking at a functionality approach, right? They need to find a way to make a robot be able to do the thing it's designed to do. But if that robot is designed to interact within the human environment, part of what it has to do is interact with humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's usually the trickiest part.
4: Yeah, I believe there is a uh, human-robot interactions lab here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, isn't there? Yeah. You've, you've spoken to people mm-hmm. there.
1: Yeah, it's,
2: it's really interesting. I mean, there's... And there's so many different ways of, of creating this. There were some great questions at that panel. One guy uh, asked because he worked in an... In a, company, either it makes industrial robots or they use industrial robots. I can't remember precisely, but he said, what do you think about what are ways that we can design industrial robots so that they create a, a, a warning that people can pick up on and not just dismiss. And they were saying, yeah, it's really tricky because if you create an expression that becomes, uh, that the people associate with being human, they, there's also the danger of dismissing something. Like you might dismiss a person who you don't think is really an authority figure telling you, hey, don't do that. And you're like, oh, well, they don't even know what they're talking about. And they said this is actually a really hard problem to solve because you want to create the safest possible response. But you, right now, people don't agree on what that actually is.
4: I would say that what you should do is when you're designing dangerous industrial robots, you should design them to look scary. Yeah. You should specifically design <laughs> like, them, like hire people to design them so they look like angry monsters. And maybe
2: have like like circular saws on the shoulder that are just constantly rotating. Well,
4: no, not necessarily make them more dangerous than they already are, but to make them look like a scary creature.
2: Joe, reach for the stars, man. Okay, Come on. okay. Yeah. M- maybe. All the maybe, saws, every
1: saw. Maybe uh, like, like edgeless circular saws so they're not <laughs> actually more dangerous. They just look.
4: And have well, them just roar and breathe fire every think, now and then. I
1: think if
2: you make it make a really obnoxious sound, it oh, also yeah. look bad.
1: Actually, instead of making them scary, just make them annoying, like, like, <laughs> ir- like a field of earth. Urkelbots, like putting together your. But
2: everybody want to hug Urkelbot. Oh, would, that's actually I'm, that's true. I'm thinking of a uh, what's the what's the little robot in the Borderlands game? Uh, I'm thinking of that one. Claptrap, make uh-huh. it like Claptrap, where you know after you're around it for thirty seconds, you're like, I would rather be anywhere else but here. Um, <laughs> it, it was a really cool conversation. I'm glad I got a chance to go to that panel. And in fact, I have to thank Lauren for that because I originally had a different panel on my schedule, and she said, "Well, why don't we just switch it out for this other one? And it was totally the right call. It was a much better. Well, I don't know. It was a much better panel because because you didn't other one. see the other
1: one. But yeah. it was a
2: very informative and entertaining panel. Uh, so uh, huge props to all of the people at South by Southwest who, who did these panels. It's really interesting stuff. And um and it was great to kind of get that that view of the future. I think in all cases it was more optimistic than otherwise. Which again kind of speaks to me. So I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to go there and that I had the opportunity to sit, to sit down on some of these panels.
1: Yeah, it was a really exciting conference overall. Uh, I, I definitely recommend if, if people are interested, as well probably many of you are, in yeah. uh, in hearing industry experts talk about these kind of things. And, and you know, there, there's a lot of marketing involved, too, I think. Yes. But yeah. but it's, it's, really, it's really lovely getting to actually talk to these people.
2: It is. And, uh, of course, there are tons of other things that are awesome about the surrounding event. Uh, like the tacos, which I will talk about at length. How
1: many how many tacos did you eat while you were there? Do you have a count? A I total had seven, taco count? Seven tacos. I only had five. I think I think I might be like the like the lost the lost leader in in taco yeah con- consuming. consumption. Yeah. consumption. I, oh wait
2: wait I'm sorry I had nine. I forgot about <laughs> there you the, go. I forgot better. about the two airport tacos.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> I I actually had three like immediately upon landing. I'm not sure. I'm yeah, not sure why I did that.
2: It, 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 they are addictive. Well, uh, at any rate. Uh, I do recommend checking out South by Southwest if you get the opportunity. It's a pretty it's pretty expensive to get a badge, but there are a lot of things again surrounding the conference. If you if you're not able to uh, afford the direct conference, there are a lot of opportunities to talk to super smart people in all different fields of music, film, interactivity.
1: Mm And there's a there's a lot of areas that you can get into with a guest pass, which is basically just like an online registration process. Yeah, so yeah. You, d- you don't have to go through. You don't have to pay any money for it. Right. So uh, definitely check it out. And, and hey, um, uh, check out some of the videos that are coming out on now.howstuffworks.com. Yeah. And got, also our YouTube channel. You can you can find them with Google. Yeah, I'm we, sure. got, we got quite a few. Right. We
2: got some about uh, autonomous cars, future of transit. You did one about that, right? And mm-hmm. I get I did uh, one about robots. Um, And some other stuff, too. Yeah, we've got a ton of amazing video. Our crew worked their butts off to uh, get all around Austin and and shoot those and edit those in in a timely manner. So check that out. Also, if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, send us a message. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. At Twitter, we are fwthinking.com. Just search FW Thinking in Facebook's little search bar. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message. And we will talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
3: your perfect home sweet home.
4: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you.
0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just eight ninety seven at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
3: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride